Good morning, church. I don't know if I've ever heard you so quiet. Hey, turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. And while you're turning there, um, maybe as we bring up the house lights just a little bit so I can see the, the folks out here. Um, I, I just want to uh, share with you a little bit. So some people have been asking me uh, and been wondering, why is Pastor Greg not preaching so often? You know, what's up? Is he, is he like planning on retirement or something? And, and I, ju- I just want to assure you, I have no plans of retirement. I was hoping some of you would do that, but uh, because I know that some of you are happy for about that to hear that, and some of you maybe are sad to hear that. I don't know, but uh, but so the, the real reason why we've recently developed a preaching team and me preaching less really is twofold. One is I think it's good for you. I think it's good for you to hear you know different voices, different personalities, different styles. Kind of keeps things fresh for you, so it's good for you. But but also it's really good for me. Okay, because uh, it's tough cranking a message out Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And so by uh, not preaching as often, it does give me more time to focus on other things. Uh, Just some leadership things, administrative things uh, of what's going on in the church, and also to be out in the community more and just network and connect. And so that's the thought. And uh, even, I want you to know, we even talked about it at the advisory council level, and they think it's a great idea to to do this. And so that's why. That's what's going on. I don't have any plans of retirement except maybe in my imagination years from now. But uh, so so that's what's going on. And so I just wanted you to know that and thank you uh, so much for understanding understanding that, and and I I just wanted you to know that. So Hebrews, we're in this series uh, all summer long about uh, the book of Hebrews, and the series is called Better, and we're working our way through, not really verse by verse, but trying to touch on many of, of the chapters at least. And today, we come to one of the most uh, difficult chapters, really, in in Scripture, uh, and, and actually one of the most controversial passages in, in the whole Bible. And so uh, to help you understand the passage as we read it, you'll see on your outline how the passage breaks down. The first few paragraphs warn us about the danger of stagnation, the danger of stagnating. And then the next paragraph warns us about the danger of falling away. And the final paragraph encourages us with the joy of full assurance. So the danger of stagnating, the danger of falling away, and the, having the joy of full assurance. So here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through into chapter 6 down to verse 12. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. Now, pause right there. Interesting. He's been, you know, this is Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, so a lot's already been said up to this point. Hopefully you've been reading through the book of Hebrews this summer. And he's been talking about the priesthood of Jesus and even Melchizedek, uh, a priest in the Old Testament. And, uh, and he, he's, he's unpacking uh, the story there. And he says, we have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. That's kind of in your face, isn't it? Uh, and so, he, I mean, that's a great way for a speaker to endear himself with the people. Uh, you just, you don't even try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And then chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment, and God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Wow. Kind of an in-your-face passage, isn't it? I I want us to kind of walk through each of the the sections here. There's the danger of stagnating, the danger of falling away, and then the joy of full assurance. So let's look at this first section, beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, where he warns us about the danger of stagnating. Notice what he says here in these these beginning verses. He basically says you're still infants in your faith. You should be maturing, but you're still like little babies, little infants. You need milk, not solid food. Solid food is for the mature. So since we're talking about babies and we're talking about infants, please forgive me, but have I told you I'm a grandpa? Um, And you know what? I get to tell you I am a grandpa yet again. I mean, I mean, another time. I have another grandchild on the way. And my son, Corey, my son, my, my daughter-in-law, Chelsea, who lived down in Savannah, Georgia, uh, uh, Chelsea is pregnant and due in around Christmas time and with another baby boy. So it's going to be my third grandson. So I have Beckham, I have Bentley, and I don't know. Will I have a third B? I don't know. So, uh, and, and so, uh, and you know, my daughter, Carrie, and, and her husband, Seth, they live here in town. In fact, they were here first service, sitting right over here. And uh, little Bentley is five months old now. And uh, I just want to show you a little video clip of, of Seth, his dad, making, pretending to sneeze and making little Bentley giggle. So just watch this. Watch this. Huh? 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 Okay, you get the idea. You get the idea. That goes on for another 15 minutes, and I love all of it. But I, I didn't want to put you through all, all of that time. But, but we, Sandy and I are just so in love with little Bentley already. And he just brings such unimaginable joy to our hearts. But, but let me tell you, there is, there is absolutely nothing wrong with being a baby, right? There's little Bentley. Babies are beautiful. They're wonderful. Nothing wrong with being a baby. It's all good. You know, in their immaturity, and, and being an infant and only having milk and not solid, it's all good. But, but guess what? What are babies supposed to do? They're supposed to grow. They're supposed to mature, right? If months from now or if a couple of years from now, little Bentley isn't growing and he hasn't gotten off the milk and onto solid food, if he's not maturing, we, we'd be really concerned. That would be, that'd be problematic, Right? Because babies, even though it's good, it's wonderful, they are supposed to grow. Same thing spiritually. The same thing. When you and I first come to Christ, we are little babies in Christ. We are spiritual infants. And and, and we, we still we need milk, not solid food. We need the basics of the faith. We're still in our spiritual diapers. We make all kinds of messes, and we need a lot of grace. And, and, but over time, we should be maturing, and we should be growing up in our faith. This is what he's talking about here. He's talking about spiritual maturity. Do you know what spiritual maturity is? 
It consists of two basic things. It consists of knowledge, but it also consists of character. Knowledge and character. Notice what he says here. He talks about how you should be teachers by now. And after a while, you should be able to teach others about the faith. Now, he's not talking about being a a professional teacher and standing up in, in front of a classroom kind of thing. He's just saying, after a while, you should know enough about your faith that you can tell others about it, and you should be reproducing. You, you should be able to teach others and help others co- come to Christ too. So, And you should have that kind of knowledge. And then he, he also talks about how be, we should be trained to distinguish good from evil. He's talking about our morality. He's talking about character. So spiritual maturity is a combination of growing in knowledge, but also growing in character. You should constantly be learning more and more about who God is, how he operates in this world, what scripture has to say about this, that, and the other. And as you get that knowledge and applying it to yourself and applying it in your life, you should be growing in your character and in your ability to distinguish good from evil, right and wrong. And wouldn't you agree with me as we live in this society of ours that is moving further and further away from its Christian heritage, you and I need to be very clear and have a character where we can distinguish right from wrong. It's becoming more and more challenging in our culture today. As little Bentley uh, grows, he needs to grow in knowledge. So much for him to learn. He has to go to kindergarten and first grade and second grade. And wow, I just go, whoo, glad I'm through all that. He's got to go through all of that to get more knowledge. But he also has to grow in character. We have to teach him what's right and what's wrong. It's a maturing process. And how sad it is. I tell you how sad it is when a Christian stagnates. When a Christian, out of laziness or just not trying, not caring about learning, they, they get stuck in kindergarten. And you don't even get to first grade or second grade, and you you don't keep advancing in your faith. In chapter 5, verse 14, if you look at it, it, notice where it talks about training. It says training. The, The Greek word there is gymnazo, where we get our word gymnasium. The church is supposed to be like a gymnasium, where you work out. And here at CCC, our training, our gymnasium, is what we call our three C's. Do you know what our three C's are? Celebrate, connect, and contribute. Let's say that together. Celebrate, connect, and contribute. We have, have created this gymnasium here at CCC, Clarkson Community Church, where we want to celebrate, connect, and contribute. So we encourage you to come to worship services like this. We celebrate God together. You hear the teaching of the Word of God so that you can learn more, so that you can grow. But then we also encourage you to, to be having your own daily celebration where, where you are into the Scripture and, and maybe with Christian music and you are learning to, to celebrate God on your own. And, and ideally, it's a 24-7 thing, but, but even then you have uh, specific moments, specific times in your day when you focus on God and you celebrate Him. I've encouraged you because most of all of us have cell phones where you can, you can use your cell phone, download a Bible app, and you can have the Bible with you all the time. And, and you can even, if you don't like to read, you can touch a button and someone will read it to you so you can just listen to it. And, and you can be into God's Word that way. And you can be celebrating Him uh, publicly altogether, but also personally on your own. And then connecting. You celebrate and you connect. You connect with God and others. In life groups, if you're not involved in a life group here, I encourage you. You need, you need more than a Sunday morning event. You need to be in a life group where you're doing life with other, other people maybe a group of 10 of you, and you, you meet in someone's home. And, and, and this fall, I'm so excited for the, the church-wide study that we're already working on, where all of our life groups will be uh, studying the same kind of thing that I'm teaching on Sunday by Sunday. It's going to be in Galatians 5, by the way, and the fruit of the Spirit. I'm already excited, preparing, looking forward to that. But you need to connect. We have men's Bible study, women's Bible study. And then, uh, then contribute where you contribute, you start serving and, and using your gifts and abilities. And, and as you do so, you get to, to relate to other people. So this is our gymnasium. This is what we offer you here at CCC, is, is ways for you to celebrate, connect, and contribute. So uh, I have to honestly tell you that 
One of the greatest disappointments as a pastor for me over the years is to see so many people who are very intelligent, very smart, very capable, very passionate about their own career advancement and whatever, and they study and they work hard and they're diligent about, about progressing in whatever areas in their life. But when it comes to their Christian faith, they're lazy, they're stagnant, and they're still spiritual infants in Christ. And it's not because they don't have the ability to advance and to, to grow. It's just, for some reason, they don't think it's important. They don't care about it. And what he's saying here in Hebrews is that, that this kind of immaturity where you stagnate and you're kind of stuck in a permanent spiritual kindergarten, that, that it's dangerous. It's dangerous. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 11, he says, you no longer try to understand. The Greek word there is literally sluggish. You are sluggish. You're spiritually sluggish. In, in chapter 6, verse 11, near the end of our passage today, he says, I want you to be diligent. Don't be lazy. You see, there's danger in stagnation. There's danger in staying immature as a Christian. It's dangerous because it could lead you to actually falling away completely from Christ, which leads us to the second section verses 4 through 8. And, and because this is so critical, I want us to read it again. Chapter 6, I want to read through uh, 4 through 8. This is the danger of falling away. See, the danger of, of stagnating can lead to the danger of, of falling away. By the way, you, I notice you, you see the, the lights flashing on and off. It's some kind of electrical issue. We've been trying to deal with it and uh, obviously haven't solved it yet. So, so there you go. So don't be distracted by, by the lights. It's, it's, not, it's not Pastor Jeff back there playing with the lights, okay? Okay, so uh, chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible, notice now, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and, and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Wow. Notice, it is impossible for those who have fallen away to bring them back to repentance. This is the third of five warning passages in this letter to the Hebrews. Five of them. The, the first one is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. That's the first warning you'll find, five of them scattered throughout Hebrews. Don't drift away. Then we have the next one in chapter 3. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So notice, in, in chapter 2, it was don't drift away. Now in chapter 3, don't turn away. Don't have a sinful, unbelieving heart. And then the third one is here in our passage today in chapter 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit. And it goes on down to say to restore them to repentance if they have fallen away. And then let's go on to the fourth one. The fourth one is in chapter 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Do we have more after that? Okay. All right, uh, yeah, down to verse 36, yes. Yeah, go ahead, verse 36, down to verse 36. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has, he has promised, okay? And then the final, then, then the final uh, uh, warning. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? He's referring to the Israelites. If the Israelites were led by Moses, if, if, they, if they were punished so severely for turning away, how much more will we if we neglect Jesus Christ? So these are five warning passages 
scattered throughout this letter of Hebrews. And, and really, the, these warnings provide the main theme and backbone of the letter. There are red lights flashing all over the place. Don't drift away. Don't fall away. Don't turn away. Don't keep on sinning. And this is where the controversy starts. Because when you look at all of these warnings, if you're reflecting on it for very long, you eventually get around to asking, wow, is it possible for a Christian to fall away and lose their salvation? Is it possible to really be a true believer and, and drift away and harden your heart and fall away and lose your salvation? Well, this is where the, the controversy is. And depending on what church you've, you belong to, what denomination you've grown up in, you will get different answers to that. So I want to address this, this whole issue head on with you right now. And so uh, are you ready to take a deep dive with me? Are you ready? We just talked about maturity. Are you willing to learn? Are you willing to, to maybe hear some things maybe you haven't even heard before? Uh, so uh, we're, we're going to take a deep dive in, in what this passage is about, okay? So, of course, there are only two possible answers to the question. Can a true Christian lose their salvation or not? Yes or no? Now, that's really deep, right? And, and, and you're with me so far. Okay, uh, and, but actually, uh, there's a couple different ways of getting there, and so I want to share with you two major views, two major answers, yes and no. Uh, there are Calvinists, and there are also Arminians, okay? Let, let's put up on the screen here, Calvinism versus Arminian. How many of you have heard of Calvinism and Arminianism before? So, some of you have. Wow, the first service, almost everybody raised their hand. I guess we first service people are smarter, I guess. I don't know. But uh, no, that's not a good thing to start off with here. You're, you're my favorite of the two. Okay. So uh, Calvinism, it comes from John Calvin. It was a man who lived back in the 1500s, John Calvin, and he was one of the key reformers. Remember, until, until in the 1500s, there was basically the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, you had the Greek Orthodox Church, and you had some others, uh, but primarily, especially here in the West, it was, it was the Roman Catholic Church. But then in the 1500s, you had the Protestant Reformation. You had Martin Luther, and from him came the Lutheran churches. You have John Calvin, and from John Calvin comes many of the Reformed churches, and Dutch Reformed, Evangelical Free, uh, uh, Presbyterian churches. Uh, you know, Presbyterians have since then divided into like liberal and conservative, but, but many of the conservative Presbyterian churches are Calvinistic in, in their theology and in their understanding. Uh, here in the west side of Michigan, you know, Grand Rapids, Holland, uh, that, that area, Calvinism has deep roots there. Calvin College is over there. I think maybe some have even gone to Calvin College. John Calvin goes all the way back, back to, to this guy in the 1500s. And he has written some theology books that have been very influential uh, in church history since that time. And then Arminianism is, comes from a guy named Jacob Arminius. Jacob Arminius, uh, he kind of reacted against John Calvin's some of his teachings. They agreed on a lot of things, but they really disagreed on some of these, these, these core things. And, and so today it's convenient for us to summarize all this by saying, you know, are you a Calvinist or are you an Arminian in your understanding of, of some of these things? So Calvinism had basically developed uh, a, an easy way to remember uh, the, the key pegs of what they believe. And they build it on the word tulip. Everybody say tulip. Okay, so Calvinists have a, a tulip theology. Okay? And, and so T-U-L-I-P. And the T stands for total depravity. Total depravity means that uh, in, in theology, theologians use it, you know, God created the world good and perfect, but then Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3. We fell into sin, and everyone since Adam and Eve, we have been born sinful. And, and this, this term, total depravity, does not mean we're as depraved and as wicked as we could possibly be. It does not mean that. But what it means is that every aspect of our soul, mind, heart, and being is infected and affected by sin. We live in a fallen world. You and I are messed up. Even our, our best and highest motives and, and best deeds are tinged with sin because it's so easy. Even when I'm doing the, a great deed... There's a little bit of that 
infected with, uh, boy, I hope I get a pat on the back. I hope somebody notices, you know, where, where I'm still kind of being self-centered about it. And so, so it, it just means we're, we, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot earn our salvation. We, we are depraved, and we desperately need God's grace in our lives. That's what that, that total depravity means. And Arminians would agree with that. They would say, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're totally depraved. We need God's grace. So we're in agreement on that. Where the disagreement starts is with the you, unconditional election. John Calvin taught, and most Calvinists after him will, will say, from all eternity, and this is where it kind of gets into the broader definitions even of predestination and, and election, uh, this unconditional election. Uh, before time began, God elected or chose some people to be saved and some people to be damned. From all eternity, God said, I'm going, I'm going to have some people who are, I'm going to elect to salvation, and they will, they will come to me. They will, they will trust me. They will love me, and they're going to make it to heaven. But then a lot of these folks, I will not elect them. I will not choose them. And why? They say it's in the mysterious, sovereign will of God. Okay? But... So some people are unconditionally elected. Now, Arminians would say, no, 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 no. Predestination doesn't work that way. Now, if you believe in Scripture at all, you have to believe in predestination and election and the decrees of God and all those terms and words because they're in the Bible there, but we just understand them differently. Arminians will basically say, oh, yes, what God has predestined is not you to be saved and you to be damned. What God has predestined is the plan of salvation. What God has predestined is, what he decided before time began is, everyone who gets saved, I'm going to save them through Jesus Christ. And this is what's predestined. And, and, and I'm going to choose everyone who comes to Christ. I'm going, I'm going to elect and choose anyone who receives the grace that I offer. That's what's predestined. And that, those are the people that I'm going to elect. Okay? So our Calvinists and Arminians, we all believe in predestination. We all believe in election, but we just understand it differently, what the Bible means by it. So, so then you get to the letter L, limited atonement. Calvinists will say, well, you know, we're all depraved. We're all lost. We're all going to hell. But God has unconditionally elected some of us to be saved and go to heaven. Therefore, when Jesus died on the cross, his atoning death on the cross was not for the whole world, not for everybody, but only for the elect. It was limited. Jesus died. His, his death was, was, only, it was limited only for the elect people. Arminians will say, no, 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 no. God has, has planned that, that Jesus died for the whole world. Jesus died for everybody. And, it, and it's unlimited. It's not limited just for the elect. It's limited. It, it's unlimited. God's offer of salvation is for everybody. And, we, and they'll quote verses like John 3.16. For God so loved the world, not just the elect. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, uh, shall have eternal life. So, so uh, Arminians would say unlimited in, in his atoning death. And then the I is irresistible grace. Calvinists would say that, that the people that, that God has elected, chosen from all eternity, he will uh, draw them ir- through his grace, and it will be irresistible. They will come because God will so touch their hearts and their minds and their will that they will want to come and be drawn to him. It's, it's that sweet, irresistible love of God that he draws people in. And Arminians will say, oh, we, to- we totally believe that, that God's uh, love and grace and his Holy Spirit and his presence will, will invite and, and will draw and, and, and will awaken and will energize. But God in his sovereignty leaves some space, leaves some room there for you to say yes or no. And the fact is you can resist. God's grace is not irresistible. You can resist it. And there are verses in the Bible that talk about you have resisted the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is what sin is all about, is when, when you do something God doesn't want you to do. You can resist God's will for your life. So 
difference in understanding between Calvinists and Arminians. And then when you get to the letter P, perseverance of the saints, and that's where we get to this passage here in Hebrews 6, can a, can a true Christian really lose their salvation? Of course Calvinists will say, well, of course you can't lose your salvation. You will persevere because, after all, God has unconditionally elected you from all eternity, and his grace is irresistible. And, and so your salvation is all locked in and locked down from before time even began, and it's all of God. And, of course, you will persevere. And then what they will say is people who seem to have been Christians but fallen away, well, they weren't true Christians in the first place. Okay? Arminians will say, oh, you know, the way we see Scripture, it is possible to fall away. It is possible to lose your salvation because it's not unconditional election. Uh, you know, it has to do with whether you receive God's grace. And, and you can resist God's grace. There are many verses that, that teach that. And so the perseverance of the saints, you know, God gives you everything you need, all the grace and his Holy Spirit and, and all of his great resources and his presence and his love so that you absolutely can persevere and you can live with confidence and assurance. But it is possible, to quote all of these warning verses, it is possible to drift away, fall away, and reject Christ and lose your salvation. So you see, this is, this is Calvinism and Ar Arminianism. And, and there are a lot of churches and traditions. Uh, for example, uh, uh, I already mentioned, you know, the, the Reformed Church, Presbyterians tend to be Calvinistic in their understanding. Uh, Methodist churches, Nazarene churches, Pentecostal churches, uh, the churches that are influenced by John Wesley and his tradition, Wesleyan kind of churches, holiness kinds of churches, they, they would be more Arminian. And if you haven't been able to tell by now, I'm from the Arminian uh, understanding. And, and uh, this, this congregation has traditionally and classically been from uh, the, the Arminian un understanding. And, uh, uh, but, I, but I also want to say this, that uh, I believe that what unites us is greater than what divides us. In my opinion, it's been sad. I mean, I can see how it happens because, you know, there can be a real rub here. But uh, I, I know that there are some good, uh, wonderful people who are Christians and they're Calvinists. I read uh, some of their books, and so I agree with like 90% of what they say. But when they start touching on the Calvinist stuff, I go, uh-uh, not that part. Uh, uh, so I, I don't think it's, it's really worth dividing over or fighting over, but, but I, do th I do think it's important. It's a part of your maturity. It's a part of your growing up in Christ, that you understand that these are the ways that Christians have wrestled with, with Scripture over the years. Now, I, I, I just want to also touch on a couple of key differences that help, help you get this in your mind. A couple of key differences between Calvinism and Arminianism is, has to do with God's sovereignty. You know, we all believe that God is sovereign, right? God is king. God is mighty. God is powerful. He is sovereign over all creation. God is not just, you know, like sitting on a throne, you know, you know wringing his hands and all worried about all this. You know, no, he is mighty. He is sovereign. But Calvinist Arminians will understand God's sovereignty in different ways. Calvinists will generally say that God's sovereignty, by definition, means that he controls everything. And everything that happens, happens because it is God's will. And so anything that happens, even an accident, even sin, even a tragedy, it happens because God decreed from all eternity. He predestined that that would happen. And Arminians would say, no, 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 no. God is sovereign, God is mighty, but he has created us in such a way that he has given us our space, so to speak, so that we have a certain amount of freedom and that, that we can use and abuse our free will, and that's why these bad things can happen, or that's why some people are, are, are saved or not saved. Uh, for example, let me give you a very personal example. Uh, my father, I've told you many times over the years that my father is not a Christian. In fact, he's an atheist, doesn't believe there is a God. In fact, pray uh, for him, pray for me. This afternoon, 
uh, whenever this sermon ends. I'm going to uh, uh, I'm going to hop in my car and I'm going to Pennsylvania for a week, and uh, I'm going to spend some time with my dad and my sisters, and uh, I'm going to have probably I'm going to try, Lord willing, to have yet another conversation with my dad. Uh, I've had thousands of them over the years, but uh, he's pretty pretty hard heart, and uh, so but we we have a great time together. So pray for my dad, pray for me. So regarding my dad, he's 80 years old. And for the, for the safe, sake of an example of why, why does this even matter, uh, if my dad, let's say just for an example, if my dad would die and have never have professed faith in Christ and goes to hell, uh, and, and you ask the question, why did my dad never receive Christ? Why is my dad in hell for eternity now? The Calvinist answer would be, well, he wasn't one of the elect. Because if God had chosen him, elected him, he would have irresistibly drawn him. And he would have brought him to faith. And the fact that he didn't become a believer is just shows that he wasn't among the elect. And somehow, the Calvinists, in their, their way of thinking, they, they would go on to say, and that honors and glorifies God. Because God is that in charge that everything that happens, happens according to his will. And so, so the reason my dad is, is in hell is because God has, from all eternity, chosen some to be saved, some not to be saved, and my dad was one not chosen. And as an as a Arminian thinker, I go, how? For number one, I can't square that with Scripture. Number two, how does that glorify God? I, I don't, I'm not even sure I like that kind of God. So the Arminian answer, which is what I am, I would say the reason my dad went to hell and not to heaven, the reason he didn't choose was not because God had foreordained it and decreed it and predestined it and he wasn't one of the elect. I would say it's because even though God offered him grace, offered him salvation, and, and, and convicted him by his Holy Spirit. I know my dad's been convicted by the Spirit many times over the years, and, 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 and I have tried to share the gospel, and it was all offered. My father refused and rejected and said no. He used his own free will to say no. That's the Arminian way of, of dealing with these kinds of things. So do you see the difference? You see two words up here relating to God's sovereignty, monergism and synergism. Do you see those two words? Monergism, synergism. Say monergism. Synergism. Okay, we've all heard synergism, right? That's kind of a cool word, you know, synergism with synergistic and all that. But uh, probably haven't heard of monergism. It's a word that theologians use, especially Calvinists. And mono means one, and uh, ergism means energy. Okay, so one energy, one work, one action. Calvinists are monergists. Arminians are synergists. And what that means is Calvinists will say God is so sovereign, he's so mighty that everything that happens is his energy. It's his doing. It's his action. And now when you apply that to salvation, it means salvation is all of God and none of you. God so works in you that he gave you the grace. He gave you the faith. He so changed your will that you wanted him, and it's all of him and none of you, where Arminians would say, no, it's more synergistic. Yes, it's God's grace. Yes, it's God's, you know, salvation is all from God, but at some point in there, we have to cooperate with him. We have to say yes, and, and we work together. And so Calvinism is more cause and effect. God causes you to want to do things, and you do it. And you want to do it, so you're free because you're doing it freely, but it's God who made you want to do it. And, and I kind of scratch my head and go, that sounds more like manipulation than freedom. Uh, but the Arminian is not into cause and effect. The, the Arminian is more into influence and response. God will influence you. He will convict you. He will draw you. He will shine his light upon you. He will, you know, use your conscience and all of that. But, but somewhere in there, he allows you enough freedom to say yes or no to him, okay? So, uh, th- those are some of, the, some of the key differences between Arminianism and uh, Calvinism. So, uh, now, if I haven't confused you yet, let me try again. 
here's the third option. Uh, so we just talked about classical Calvinism, right? Classical Calvinism says you cannot lose your salvation. You can't because you're predestined, you're elected, you're irresistibly drawn. It's all locked in. Classic Arminianism says, yes, you can lose your salvation if you drift too far, if you harden your heart, and you reject God's love and grace for you, there is a point of no return. The third view out there in church world is summed up with phrases like, once saved, always saved. How many have heard of that? Once saved, always saved. Uh, eternal security. Those are, those are the phrases that some of uh, our more popular preachers across the country, those of you may remember Andy Stanley, I think he, or, or actually it's Andy Stanley's father, Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley has actually written a book on this whole thing. And, and Tony Evans, another great preacher out there. Great men, great preachers, great men of God, love them, respect them, but I disagree with him on this point. And, and the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, it's interesting. You know, you have Southern Baptists who believe in eternal security, but really they're more Arminian in their understanding than they are Calvinistic, but they, they just get to the eternally secure position in a different way without actually being Calvinists. And they, they basically say, once you receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, you cannot lose your salvation. You may harden your heart. You may fall away from fellowship with God. You may live a wicked life and disobey him in all kinds of ways, but you are still a child of God, a very disobedient child, but you are still his child because it's all of God's grace. And even though you're a disobedient child, you're still his child. And some of them will even go so far to say that there can even come a point where you're living such an ungodly, wicked life that God is almost embarrassed of you and the witness, the poor witness you're giving in the world, that he will kill you and take you home. But you're still going to heaven because you cannot lose your salvation. Now, I tell you, uh, when I look at Scripture, and when I look at all the verses, they line up for, you know, how you can't lose your salvation. And I look at these warning passages in Hebrews and, and really try to understand it. I just can't see that. The way I understand Scripture, there is no way you can live an ungodly, wicked, disobedient life and still go to heaven. You can't. Hebrews twelve fourteen. without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So don't you dare think you can just come to the altar, pray a prayer, receive Christ, and then you're locked in and sealed, and now you can go out and live in wickedness and disobedience and think you're going to make it to heaven. I think that's dangerous. So as I grapple with Hebrews 6, it's clear to me that these verses definitely describe believers because some will say, well, they weren't really Christians. No, no, look at it. It, you know, they've tasted the heavenly gift. Uh, you know, they're all, all these phrases, they're, they're, they're true believers. These verses clearly say that it's possible to fall away from salvation, not just fall away from fellowship with God, but no, you fall away from salvation. I think it's verse 9 in chapter 6 says, we have better things in mind for you, things concerning salvation. Now, I want to address a very practical concern here. If you look at that verse 4 and verse 6 again, it says, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. It is impossible, if they fall away, to restore them to repentance. What does that mean? I believe he's re referring to apostasy here. Apostasy. He's not saying that if you or I sin, we're automatically unsaved, and, and, and we can't repent, and we can't be saved again. That's not what he's saying here, because let's face it, you and I sin, and we sin a lot. And, and we need God's grace, and we need to repent often. <laughs> and Scripture is clear that when you and I sin, it's not like you're saved, unsaved, saved, unsaved. No, no, it's not like that. And when you and I sin, and the Holy Spirit convicts us, we, we can repent, and we can be forgiven, and, 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 you know, restored in our fellowship and in our walk with God again. And, and that's just part of, of, of living, part, part of life. What he's talking about here is apostasy. The Bible says that there can come a point where we reject Christ so firmly, so decisively, we can harden our hearts so hard 
that we may finally reach a point of no return. We can get to the point where we do not repent, we don't want to repent, and our character becomes so formed and so hardened that, that we won't repent. We can't repent. Jesus referred to apostasy in Mark 3, 28. He said, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Wow. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is convicting you, and you reject. The Holy Spirit convicts you, and you reject, and you harden. And there can come a point where you are so hard, you don't care anymore. The Apostle John talks about apostasy in 1 John 5, 16. If you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray, and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. Over the years, I've had people ask me, Pastor, have I committed apostasy? Pastor, I'm afraid I've committed the unpardonable sin. I, I'm afraid I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. Oh, Pastor, and, and as I talk to them, I, I, I can assure them, based on, on these, these, these passages here, maybe they've done something really wrong, really bad, really horrible, and they feel so guilty about it. Maybe they're feeling just spiritually stagnant and dead and and feeling guilty. And, and, and I tell them, listen, the Holy Spirit will never tantalize you. God will never play games with you. If you are worried that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, if you are worried and concerned that you have somehow committed the unpardonable sin and can't, God won't accept you back, the very fact that you are worried about it proves you haven't committed that sin. Because the fact that you want to repent, the fact that you even care, means that you haven't committed that kind of sin. Because the person who has committed apostasy, the person who's blasphemed the Spirit, the person who's who's gone that far, they don't care anymore. They they don't want to repent. They don't want to come back. So even though it is possible to fall away and apostatize. What Hebrews is saying throughout the whole letter, but especially in this passage, and here's where I want to really encourage us today, in spite of some of this tough stuff that he says, he really gets in our face here, is that you and I, you and I can have joy of full assurance. Notice what he says. I love how he does this. He he talks about, boy, don't you fall away because it's impossible to bring these kind of people back to repentance. And then he begins in verse 9. This is the joy of full assurance. He says, even though we speak like this, (laughs) even though I've been in your face for a while, he says, he he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. Better things. That's why we've, we've called this whole series Better. Throughout, throughout the book of Hebrews, he talks about better things and how Christ is better. Better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and, and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Amen? Do you see the synergism here? Remember, monogism, synergism? This is a very synergistic passage here. It's God and you. Yes, God has saved you by his grace. It's all of his grace. But you have to cooperate. He says, don't be lazy. You need to be diligent. God has better things in mind for you. So don't fall away. Don't stagnate. Try to learn. You need to mature. And you can do so with confidence. You can live with the joy of full assurance. You can know that you're saved. I've talked to some people over the years. They said, well, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm... No, no, no. You can know. You don't have to have a hope-so faith. You can have a no-so faith. You can know that you're saved and you're right with God. And if you were to drop dead right now, you go to heaven and be with him. 
You can know that you're a child of God. You can live with that confidence, that security, that, and feel safe in his hand. Now, don't you dare presume upon God's grace. Don't you start thinking, oh, well, man, God's got all this, so I can, I can go do this, and I can start drifting, and I can start hardening my heart, and I can start turning and, and drifting away. No, no, no. Don't, don't, don't be playing that game. That's dangerous, and that's what he's saying here. That's dangerous. As long as you're open and humble before Christ, there's no condemnation. No condemnation. God has better things in mind for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have better things in mind for us. I pray that you would help us to mature, help us to grow up. Lord, forgive us for being so lazy and sluggish and stagnant in our spiritual walk. We can be so smart and so energetic and so aggressive in our jobs and our careers and in other areas of life where we master a whole discipline and learn all kinds of jargon that's related to our career. And then when it comes to our faith, we can be so immature and so lazy. Lord, help us to grow up. Lord, maybe some of us are falling away. We've been hardening our hearts. We've been hanging around church and nobody might even know it, but we've been hardening our hearts. We've been disobeying you in certain ways. And maybe we're on the verge of just outright rejecting you. Maybe we're even close to apostasy. And I pray, Father, that your word and your spirit and your grace would influence them and invite them and draw them back to you. Have mercy, Lord. And Father, maybe some of us here today are, are just spiritually depressed. They're insecure and unsure. Help them to see that if they're just humble and open before you, that there's plenty of forgiveness, plenty of love, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to live with the joy of full assurance. Don't let us live with weak hope-so kind of faith. Give us that no-so kind of faith. We can know that we're right with you. We can know that we're saved. We can know that we're safe and secure in you. Give us that assurance for your glory. And all God's people say, amen. Hey, I ask that as you leave this morning, that maybe you leave quietly.